I know that guy. It was Saturday morning and I was on the couch doing what I did most every Saturday morning as a kid. I wasn't watching cartoons. I was watching WWF superstars. That's professional wrestling for you bougie type people. But I was sitting there and there was Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. And I was shocked when I saw his face and I heard the announcer say, coming to the ring now, Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. And I thought, I know that guy. And I really did know him. One of my mom's really good friends actually dated this wrestler for a little while. And he had come to our house. He had suplexed me in our pool. He had actually given us tickets to go watch him wrestle at the local armory one night. Front row seats in front of 15 people. Professional wrestling at the local armory. And this guy was famous in the Middle Tennessee wrestling circuit, and now he had made it to the big time. He was one of the scrubs that was getting whipped by, I think it was Rick Martell. And I understood, even in that moment, that wrestling was fake. But I found myself, because I knew him, standing up in front of the couch and yelling at the TV and cheering that he was going to win this match. And he was getting destroyed. But other than... Some athletes that I kind of knew or uh, had kind of been around growing up. I think this was the closest thing I've ever actually come to knowing someone who was famous. A professional wrestler who made it in WWF. And I remember uh, in college, we gathered in college, uh, a bunch of my friends were watching WCW Thunder one night. And there again was Frankie the Thumper Lancaster. And I silenced everybody in the room and said, I know that guy. I know him. I've met him. And they looked at me and said, you mean the guy getting destroyed in the ring? Who cares that you knew him? They were unimpressed. But unless you're here today and you're just really connected with celebrities or famous people or athletes or musicians, for the vast majority of us, the people we cheer on, the celebrities that we are fans of, the athletes that we pull for, for the most part, we we don't know the people that we try to make known, that we're fans of. Now, I understand there's a group from Estill County that claims to know the Backstreet Boys. But for the most part, the people we're fans of, the people we promote, even politicians that we claim to know, we really don't know them. I had a friend in college and we would watch college football together and he was an Alabama fan. And it used to drive me crazy that he would refer to all of the players by their first name. He had like memorized them and he would be like, go Sean, go Dante. And I, I would looked at him one day and said, you don't know them. Quit calling them by their first name. It drove me crazy. But we make known so many people that we really don't know. Musicians, politicians, they even want to give us the feel that we really know them. Yeah, I met that guy in a coffee shop. I shook his hand at a rally. They they want us to promote them and make them known as people who think we know them, but we really don't know them. 
Think about this. The most known person in human history is Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is the most known person in human history. And the call of the gospel is not just to make known this person you don't know, but to first know this person and then make him known. And not just to know him from a distance, but to really know him. And we see that in our text today. Notice verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now, why did he do this? We see because a great crowd is gathered around him. Now, throughout Mark, we're beginning to see a pattern. Jesus moves into cities. He moves into villages. And in those cities and villages, he always has a conflict with the religious leaders. And then he moves away from the city, away from the village, away from the religious leaders. And it's a picture, it's symbolic of what is going on. The kingdom is moving away from the self-righteous. And here we see that picture as Jesus moves out to the sea, away from the city. And notice a great crowd followed him from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edome, and beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon, from all of these regions, all of these towns, all of these villages, all of these cities. They move out with him, people from all of these regions around Galilee. Now, this great crowd was made up of all kinds of people, Jews, Gentiles from all kinds of places, all kinds of cultures. And notice why they did when the great crowd heard all he was doing. Now, we've seen Jesus has said his purpose is to come and preach the gospel, to declare that the kingdom is at hand in his flesh and blood. The kingdom that will overthrow Satan, sin and death is present in his person. And yet to display that power, he is casting out demons. He is healing the sick. He is performing signs and wonders. And the crowd sees it and they are following after him because of what he is doing. And so he tells his disciples to have a boat ready. Now, this would have been an escape vehicle. Have it ready because the crowd has surrounded him and they are pressing him to the water and there is nowhere else to go. But notice what is described here. Have the boat ready because the crowd, lest they crush him. And the word for crush is to mob him. They are ready as they are pursuing to just touch him and be healed of their disease. This was a time where there was no medical care. And can you imagine you you lived your whole life with leprosy? You lived your whole life not being able to see, not being able to walk. And here is the presence of this one who overwhelmingly has the power to heal all your disease, heal all of your sickness, cause you to walk calls you to see, and crowds of people are crushing him around him, ready to, even in their excitement, the danger to destroy him. Notice, for he healed many, so that all who had disease pressed around him to touch him. Jesus is the latest, greatest preacher of the day. He is the rabbi with authority and power And here's the thing. Everybody knows it. It is no mystery 
who he is and what he is doing. If there were podcasts, if there were YouTube downloads, he would have the most Twitter followers. He is the latest, greatest teacher of the day. And people are hoarding to just be around him. And notice verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. You are God's King in flesh. And we see that as Jesus is preaching the gospel. These unclean spirits show up. Unwhole angels. Those who have been cast out of the throne room of God with Satan. Those who have rejected God's authority. They have infested the earth. And as the gospel is being preached, they are purged. They are being brought. They they are being brought forth to say who Jesus is. Isn't it amazing that the demons know who he is? The unclean spirits are confessing he is the son of God. But notice what he does. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. These beings who are using human vocal cords... To declare in the demonic realm, the son of God has come to planet earth. And Jesus says, shut it. Why would he do that? Because Jesus is sovereign king. And he is in control of the plan where he will be rejected and he will be crucified. And there's no demon that's going to jeopardize that. And by the way, the religious leaders are claiming he's possessed by a demon. So he squelches their confession. But here the demons, their knowledge of Jesus is to be a rebuke to the religious and even to the crowds. As Jesus preaches in the synagogue, it's not the religious leaders that say, yes, you're the son of God. It is the demons who come before him and say, have you come to destroy us? What business do we have? The religious leaders can't see the son of God. And hear the crowd that is hoarding around him to crush him. They don't really see who he is. And how does the story end with the crowd? The crowd clamoring to be healed is the crowd that will be chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And so the religious don't see it. The crowds don't see it. But the demons do. Do you realize the demons have a more sincere faith? Than the religious leaders or the crowd. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind that they see clearly who this is. And they're scared to death because they know their doom is sealed. And it should be a warning to us today. You can know Jesus but not know him. You could be gathered here today. And you have sung songs about Jesus. You have engaged in prayers in the name of Jesus. You're surrounded by people who are following Jesus. You hold in your hand a Bible or a phone with the words of Jesus on them. And the warning is, like the crowds, like the religious leaders, you can see it but not see it. You can claim to know him but not Know him. You can carry out all of these things today in hopes that it's just going to make you a better person. You you can be so close and yet so far away. Maybe you're here today and you're like the crowds flocking to Jesus. 
And you run to this place week after week just because you need some community. You don't like being alone. And so you run to the Jesus people. Maybe you're here today and and you're like the grounds. You want a miracle. Maybe it is your health that you're worried about. And you think by coming to church, Jesus is going to fix it. For some of us, it's our marriage. If I flock to Jesus, he's going to fix my marriage. Maybe it's just finances. You show up here and you go through the motions because you're scared to death. If you don't go through this and you don't claim to know Jesus, you're going to have trouble with your finances, your job, your career. And you're claiming to know Jesus, but you don't know him. And the demons who are present in this place today swirling about have a more sincere faith than you seated in the chair. Now, the demons say he's the son of God and their testimony here today would call you to bow before Jesus, the one who has come to defeat sin and death. They know it. The one who has come to die on a cross and pay the penalty for your sin, that sin would have no power over you no longer. The one who has been raised from the dead and seated at the right hand as the king and Lord and defeater of Satan and death. The demons would call you today to who he truly is. The one who will destroy them. And yet their testimony would call you to bow before him and surrender to him and find all of your identity in him. To truly know him and follow after him. Notice he moves even further away in verse 13. Isn't it interesting The celebrity status of Jesus. He comes into a town. Everybody knows about him. And and if, I mean, why doesn't, if you're reading Jesus, why don't you take advantage of this? Why do you keep moving away from the crowds? He plant a church in one of these cities. What are you doing? And it's almost as if though he's moving away from the crowds on purpose. So he moves to the sea and then he goes to the mountain. Notice verse 13. He went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. Now, the way to translate this is he called to himself those whom he had chosen. Those who he desired to follow after him. And he goes up on a mountain. Now, rabbis and teachers during this time, they used mountains to teach upon. They would they would set up top and their disciples would gather around them and they would teach. Jesus did that on the Sermon on the Mount. In Mark, a mountain is used ten times to describe the ministry of Jesus. But he calls to himself those whom he had chosen. And notice they came to him. Now, this wasn't just some mechanical selection In the Gospel of Luke, we read that before Jesus called the disciples to himself, that he prayed all night. He knows what these men are about to face. He knows what it's going to cost them by following after him. And he knows it's no trivial thing to come after him. He knows what's ahead of them. He prays for them. And then he calls them to himself, those whom he had chosen. Notice the text says, and they came to him and he appointed. Now, the word for appointed means to create, to make something. He's going to make something new with the 12 here whom he also called apostles. Now, the word means apostle. It means sent one. We think about an ambassador. 
Often during this time, it was used in light of commercial, industrial activity. Someone was sent out on a boat as an apostle, as a representative to do business for you. And here Jesus calls the apostles who are going to go out on his behalf. And he's creating something new. He's appointing them. And it will be through their message preached. These 12 men, they will become the foundation stones of something new Jesus created in the world called the church. He's beginning to form the church here. But notice, he calls them to himself that they might be with him. He's not just calling them and it's just not just some business deal. Not some distant transaction. I want you to come be with me. Now, this would have probably been about a year and a half into Jesus's ministry. And so for a year and a half, these men are going to live with Jesus. They're going to leave their businesses. They're going to leave their family. For many of them, they're going to leave their hometown, everything they know. And they're going to go to mills with Jesus. They're going to go to weddings with Jesus. They're going to go to funerals with Jesus. They're going to be involved in festivals with Jesus. They're going to go to parties with Jesus. They're going to be a part of cultural events with Jesus. They're going to go to worship with Jesus. And all along the way, being with Jesus, he's going to teach them about the kingdom. The kingdom that is present in my flesh and blood. This is what it looks like. And this is what it looks like to be a part of it. And this is what, notice, that he might send them out to preach. This is the kingdom you will preach. Now remember the word preach. It means to herald. It means to announce that the king is here. During this time, trumpets would blare. The king is coming. The king is here. There's an announcement. You're going to announce post-cross, post-resurrection that the kingdom has invaded the world and it, it it will be present in your message. How do we know that? Verse 15, that they might preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, as these men will move to the ends of the earth, making disciples of all nations, they will declare in Jesus, the kingdom has come death on a cross, resurrection, a promise of eternal life is present in Jesus Christ. His kingdom is at hand and Jesus gives them the authority to cast out demons. Why that? We've seen that throughout Mark. It's because God is declaring as the gospel is preached, Satan is being toppled. Satan, who has invaded this world and invaded the hearts of men, even invaded the bodies of men. He is being cast out of this world by the power of God through the preaching of the gospel. As men's hearts are softened to the gospel, as they believe the gospel, as they follow Jesus, Satan is being toppled. And this will be a pattern of their ministry all the way to this day. The preaching of the gospel is how the kingdom moves across the world. Men and women who are called to be with Jesus, to know Jesus, and then are sent by Jesus. Remember when Jesus, he's back from the dead, and before he ascends to heaven, what does he do? He calls his disciples to a mountain again. And the nature of this ministry begins to take on a new dynamic. After the resurrection. Because he calls them to be with him. And he says, I'm going to send you out to preach. I'm going to send you out to make disciples. In the same way you have been with me. And I've taught you the kingdom. I want you to do that. You call others to be with you. To walk with you. To know you. As you teach them the kingdom. 
And then you make more disciples and those disciples, you teach, you teach them everything I've commanded. What have I commanded? Make disciples. And so that process just continues and continues and continues. But how does the great commission end? Lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. It changes. No longer do you go up to the mountain to be sent out by Jesus. As you make disciples, you're already with Jesus. You obey the great commission to be with Jesus. Being sent by Jesus and being with Jesus are the same thing in the great commission. You want to be with Jesus? Make disciples of all nations because that's what he's doing. They're not two different things. The great commission itself is a command we obey to be with Jesus. With Jesus and sent by Jesus are not distinct now. We are with Jesus when we are sent. We know Jesus as we make him known. Now, that's what's so frustrating with some of us about the Christian life. We, we know Jesus and we believe the gospel and we spend our days asking why. What sense does the gospel make in my life? And we try to make sense out of the gospel in our life, disconnect it from what it means to be sent. You know Jesus to make Jesus known. Jesus has called you to himself to be with him, to know him by the spirit of God so that you might make him known. And if you don't get that right, you're going to be a frustrated Christian. What I like to call a constipated Christian. Because you're constipated on the gospel. Because you have the gospel and you have all of this knowledge. You go to Bible studies, you learn theology, you listen to sermons, you go to BFG and you, you claim to know Jesus. I know Jesus. I know Jesus. I know Jesus. And you are stopped up with all of that knowledge. And it's making you miserable. Because you don't know why you have it. And so you walk around and you critique others in your pride. They don't know as much as I do. They don't understand as much as I do. And you become this miserable, frustrated person who claims to know Jesus. And it's because you are not making Jesus known. We worship here together. We gather here to know God, to make him known. That's why we say we gather to go. We don't just gather to feel good about our relationship with Jesus. Every day, every Sunday, we say, you are sent. Why? Because what we experience here is to be multiplied throughout the globe. And so we know Jesus to make him known. We study the Bible to make him known. It's not just so I can defeat all bystanders on Facebook in the comment section. Or I can show up at the campus ministry Bible study and improve. I just know more than everybody around me. No, we know him to make him known. This is why evangelism is so frustrating for some of us. Because we're trying to make Jesus known without knowing him. Evangelism is just this task and it's miserable for us. It's this command from this distant master The slave driver named Jesus tells us to go tell other people about him. And we're trying to accomplish that task without making him known. And we don't see the connection. When I make him known, I am to know him. 
Do you, do you realize that's what the Great Commission is a Knowing Jesus on mission. In Acts chapter 1, we are given the power to witness the gospel to the ends of the earth. And if we're not witnessing the gospel, we don't experience the power. We know him by making him known. The flesh and blood who walked with the disciples who said, come be with me. I will send you out is with us as we make him known. As you share the gospel on campus at your dining room table. In a bus, a combi, in Peru, as you share the gospel, you are seeking to know Jesus in those places. Stu Jackson just, I think it was last week, shared the gospel with his granddad as he's dying on his deathbed. And it's in places like that that God says, come know me. Come know me. Come be with me in those places. As we share the gospel in these extremely difficult times. You see, that's why some of us are are really miserable. Because we're trying to know Jesus in the midst of a pandemic. In the midst of political chaos. And we're trying to know Jesus more. And we're asking why. It's not, I'm still kind of miserable. And it's because you're not making him known. Jesus invites us to come know him as we make him known. And notice... Continues verse 16, he reiterates, he wants to explain who these 12 men are. And remember, verse 16, he appointed the 12. He created, he's creating something new that we call the church. And then he goes through a list of names here. And to be honest with you, in this list and other lists of the disciples, he names them and they're not very flattering names. Have you ever noticed that as you read the names of the disciples and then you'll notice little nicknames that Jesus gave them. And the nicknames often are nicknames given in light of their flaws, their shortcomings. And Jesus is like any other man. And the disciples were like any other group of men. When they got together, they made fun of each other. One of my dad's best friends growing up, or while I was growing up, that he worked with, his name, everybody called him Fat Boy. And it wasn't until I was around 14 I realized, oh, that's why they call him Fat Boy. I get it now. It's obvious. The same thing goes on with Jesus and his disciples. It's This is the way men relate to one another. But Simon Peter... He wants to make sure here that we know Jesus changed his name to the rock, which is a more manly name. And Simon, Jesus changes his identity. He gave him the name Peter, which we know means rock. He only called Peter Simon when he acted like his old self. But this is where Mark's getting the information. So his name's going to be a little more um, better than the rest. But it comes from the fact that when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Peter would look at him and say, you are the rock, the son of the living God, or you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus would turn to him and say, upon this rock, upon this confession, I will build my church. And who is preaching at Pentecost? Peter. 
How is the church formed? By Peter's declaration of who Jesus is. And then we see the description here uh, of James and John. They are the son of, sons of Zebedee. And Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. And we say, why? Because they were so often an emotional wreck. Remember, they go into the city and they're preaching the gospel and the, the city doesn't accept them. And so they come back to Jesus and they say, Jesus... We need to go back in and build relationships and do a better job with our evangelism techniques. No, after the city rejects them, they come to Jesus and say, can we rain down fire of judgment on that city? They were an emotional wreck. They wanted to sit in the chief seats when the kingdom came. They were hotheads. Now, as we begin to move down the list, we see... Peter, James, and John, they were the closest to Jesus. And the other disciples we know less about. You see, Andrew, he was Peter's brother. He was a fisherman. Philip was probably a fisherman also. Probably grew up with the other four men. He was Jewish. Philip's Greek name, is the Greek name Philip means lover of horses. So he would have fit in well in Kentucky, I guess. But Philip is the one that the Gospels tell us Jesus found him. Philip would say, I found Jesus. And Jesus said, no, I found you. Bartholomew, it's not even his name. His name's Nathan, Nathaniel. Doesn't even use his name. This means son of Talmay. Matthew was the tax collector. Friends with a bunch of sinners through parties. Thomas is often referred to as the twin which would have been an insult. You're just a twin. You're not your own person. We've been insulting during this time. And Thomas is known as the doubter. Throughout history, he sort of has a bad reputation. But he's actually the one who just wanted to see the promise fulfilled in flesh and blood. He wanted to touch the hands of Jesus. James, the son of Alphaeus. We know nothing about Alphaeus. We don't even know why he's brought up here. We do know that James's mother was a follower of Christ. And then James is called James the less. You know what the less means? Doesn't mean he was humble. It means he was a little guy. James the little guy. And then Thaddeus. Doesn't even use Thaddeus's name here. Again, the, the emphasis here is some of these guys are just no names. You don't know that much about him. He's the son of James. And actually, his real name was Judas. But he doesn't want to be called Judas here. And the name many refer to him is by is Lebius, which means heart child. What it really means is mama's boy. I'm not making this up. And then we have Simon the Zealot. And he was just this political revolutionary who protested the Roman government. Now think about this. You have Simon the Zealot who hates the Romans and Matthew, who's collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans. And now they're disciples of Jesus. And then we have Judas Iscariot, who's always listed as the one who betrayed him. And he was an outlier, probably didn't know the rest of this, these men when they came together. And what's so tragic is we have just heard about the message and the power that is given to all these men. Judas had the same power and authority as the other 11. And he's the one who betrayed him. Kissed him on the cheek. 
for 30 pieces of silver. And this was written after the fact. So why do the gospel writers include Judas? Obviously, it's a warning. But it's another point that Jesus didn't pick those who would be the most successful at some ingenious strategy to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. No, he picks a bunch of losers, to be honest with you. A bunch of no-names. He doesn't even use their names here. And why would you not just skip over Judas? But, but the appointing of these 12 men here is a sign of judgment to the religious leaders. Think about this. Jesus has moved away from the religious. He's moved away from the influential. And he's taken 12 men who are no names and they're on a mountain. And, and we're to remember Mount Sinai where Moses is brought up to God in the presence of God and he carries down the law of God. And it is through Moses's word and the law of God that Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel are created. And now Jesus is creating something new by skipping the religious, those who know the law of Moses. He's creating something new with 12 no names who will take his word into the world and create something new. The church from every tribe, every nation, every people. And he doesn't pick the most qualified to do it. They didn't show up on a mountain with a resume. They probably thought, why in the world is he calling us up here? There's ministry to do, Jesus. Why, why would you include us? I imagine them standing around looking going, we're going to do what? You're asking us to, how in the world? I mean, we don't even know his name. We just call him the twin. We got a mama's boy. We got a little guy. How in the world are we going to do this? Galilean small town folks taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. They were not world travelers. They were not social media influencers. They didn't know anything about international trade and communication. They weren't scholars. They weren't the intellectual elite. They weren't the religious elite. They were not theologians. They were unskilled and they were untrained. And here's the thing. They were painfully ordinary, painfully ordinary people. So what qualified them? No, a better question is who qualified them? Jesus said, come be with me. We're going to do something amazing. And I think a good question is, why does God always use the most unqualified? And the answer is, so there is no question who's doing all of this. There's no question. Paul says he takes the foolish. He takes the weak. He takes the base things of the world. And, and he humiliates the, the wise and the strong and those who think they're something. And he's doing the same thing here today. Look around at the no names in front of you. Look around at the unqualified. Ordinary folks. No one would say those folks are qualified to do the most important thing in human history. The most important thing that's ever happened, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He, we got a group of them here over in a warehouse. They can't even stop the leaks in the roof. 
They're going to reach the nations with the gospel. Really? Factory workers, accountants, teachers, checkout clerks, small business owners, stay-at-home moms, nurses, fools in a warehouse. And the chief unqualified small-town Tennessean. (laughs) You know, whenever I think I know what I'm doing these days, when I feel like I know what I'm doing, I prepare myself because I'm about to mess a lot of things up. I'm the most unqualified as far as the world standards to be standing up here today. And I have no idea why God would do it. It's his sovereign grace. And if you think you're here because you bring something amazing to the table, you don't understand what God is doing in your life, allowing you to be a part of this. You don't get it. He's always picked the most unqualified. And it gets even better. Because Peter was crucified upside down because he said he was unworthy to be killed as his savior. James was executed by Herod Agrippa. John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. Andrew was crucified, but he was tied to the cross he was crucified on because he didn't want the honor of being killed like Jesus. And it prolonged his suffering. Philip was stoned to death. Bartholomew was bound and drowned to death. Matthew was burned at the stake. Thomas was speared. James was stoned to death. Thaddeus was clubbed to death. And Simon the Zealot was sawn into failures. We would look on that and we'd say, oh, that was a failed mission. He sent these idiots out and they all got killed. They all got killed. Did they not have a better strategy? Well, the truth is, in being like Jesus, they became like Jesus. Who was crucified on a cross and said, come follow me, we're going to die. And it's even in death. That's an amazing thing. Even in their death, the gospel flourishes. We're here today because they died preaching the gospel that was delivered to them. Unqualified, unsuccessful in the book of Acts says they turned the world upside down. You want to be known? You're clamoring here today and you want to be known. You want to be successful. Come be with Jesus and come get ready to die for Jesus. Die to yourself and follow him. You see, some of you are here today and you're scared to death to be failures. You're scared to be a failure as a parent. You're scared to be a failure as a boss. You're scared to be a failure as a student. You're scared to be a failure as an athlete. You're scared to be a failure in this world. Following Jesus, knowing Him and making Him known, you can't fail at that. And the scariest thing that could happen for you in this life is that you be successful at something other than knowing Jesus and making Him known. You know how scary that would be? That we gather over your casket one day and say, he was successful at all of these things. But guys, I don't think he knew Jesus. And he sure never made him known. Oh, that's a waste. That's a waste. You want your life to count for something? In the midst of everything going on in the world today, say, I want to know Jesus and I want to make him known. And this story in the gospel of Mark, it ends 
All the crowds that claimed to know him, they were chanting, crucify him. And all of these men who claimed to know him, they were nowhere to be found except for John and Jesus, his mother, who's there at the cross, we think. They all departed, but they claimed to know him. And the most unqualified person to declare the gospel ends the book of Mark declaring the gospel. A man standing there holding a spear. A man overseeing the execution of Jesus at the end of the book. We hear the the screech of the demon there again through the voice of a Roman soldier who looks up and says, surely he was the son of God. And he's the one who's declaring the gospel, the most unqualified in the whole story. But maybe that gives you hope today. Because you're the most unqualified. And you're not holding a spear or a sword or a hammer. You're holding the sin that nailed him there. And Jesus would say, if you would come and you would know me at the cross and have your sins forgiven and you would believe I've been raised from the dead, the one who nailed me to the cross, your sin placed me under the wrath of God. You are the most unlikely candidate to make me known. But if you would come to the cross and say, I know that man. You will be the one to make him known. 